Please take your Bibles and turn back to the first portion that we read together from the Old Testament Scriptures in Numbers chapter 6, and I would direct your attention this afternoon to the last verse of Numbers 6, verse 27. Numbers chapter 6, verse 27, and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. If you have ventured out to learn a foreign language, a modern second language, you'll know that in doing so, you begin with um, established vocabulary. And it usually includes things like how to say hello. And ordinarily, one of the first things you learn is, my name is, you give your name. You learn how to ask, what is your name? You know, how are you? And so on. Interesting though, isn't it? That both identifying ourselves by our name and inquiring uh, of others about their name is some of the first, first things that you learn. That's because in, in proper etiquette, normally, uh, this is where we would all begin because our name is what identifies us. Our name is by what we're known and it can, it can result in other questions. People hear your name and they think, oh, are you related to so-and-so? Or are you from you know, this place or that place or whatever? Well, the title of our sermon this afternoon is Bearing God's Name. Bearing God's Name. We're all very familiar with the Aaronic benediction. We've, many of us have heard it hundreds of times thousands of times. Uh, we have heard the pronouncement of the benediction in the form given to us here in number six, what we call the Aaronic benediction. But at least in my experience, I have not seen yet uh, anyone treating the last verse, verse 27, which comes immediately after uh, the appointment of this uh, benediction. And that piques our interest for a number of reasons. But I think that we discover here that God has actually given us some gold. He's given us some gold in this last verse of number six and its connection uh, to what precedes it in, in the benediction. Now this morning, in our morning service, we had uh, the sacrament of Christian baptism. And usually, uh, at the time of a baptism, and we read a variety of different texts, and generally speaking, there is much that is the same in terms of what's said about the ordinance and its warrant and content and what it means and the appropriateness of applying it to believers' children. The language varies, but generally many of the same things are said. However, I, I tend to try to emphasize one thing, something different each time. So there'll be one thing that I'll especially uh, highlight. And I think at some time earlier in this year, the thing that was highlighted on the occasion of, of a baptism was the significance of the fact that the one being baptized, their name is being joined to God's name. So we say, I baptize thee, and then we pronounce the name, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So the name of the 
the one who's being baptized is actually joined with God's name. And then we've gone on to talk about how that, that really is descriptive of God placing his name upon those who are, are baptized. So we've had that nugget set before us a variety of ways and, and, and times, but this afternoon we're actually going to settle down in it. So we've never actually sat down and together under the word thought more deeply about what the Bible teaches regarding the significance of that. So this would be not the only, but one of the spiritual components attached to baptism. Many, many of them. We're picking one of them to expound as it is, uh, as it is related to us in the text that is before us. So the title is Bearing God's Name. We're going to note three things. First of all, we'll begin with God's name. So first of all, God's name. Notice our text says, the, the Lord says, my name. They shall put my name upon the children of Israel. We think of Psalm 8, which many of the children here could no doubt quote. It has bookends. It has an intro and a conclusion with the same words, doesn't it? Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And if the children have been reading carefully, you'll notice, children, that it's the first Lord is capital L-O-R-D, and the second is lowercase l-o-r-d and so it is lord or jehovah our lord how excellent is thy name in all the earth and so it's jehovah's name that is at the front of that and of course it is repeated again at the end of of the psalms we're speaking about the excellency of the name of god the name of jehovah this is a name that is better than any other name, better than any of the greatest, uh, most illustrious monarchs with the names of their lineage and people, better than all of those combined. Why? Because it is above all others. His name is above the highest heavens. His name excels all others in that sense. And we know from our catechism and both in the law and the, and the Lord's Prayer that when we speak of God's name, we're speaking of the revelation of who God is. And so his name is really shorthand for all of the ways in which he reveals himself. So we might think of Jehovah and El Shaddai, and we might think of you know, Jesus and Christ and other things. But it's not just his names. It would be his titles. It would include his offices. It would include all of his attributes it would include his word, it would include his works, it would include his worship, and in every other way in which the Lord reveals himself to us, all of that is communicative of what his name is, the reference to his, his name. But the question here in our passage before us is, what, what specifically is being referenced here? What, what name is it that's being referenced here? And you'll notice that the answer is given to us in the benediction, verses 24 through 26. We have the name Lord, again, capital L-O-R-D, or the name Jehovah. And you'll notice that it's used three times. So Jehovah bless thee, verse 24. Verse 25, the Lord or Jehovah make his face shine. Verse 26, the Lord, or Jehovah, lift up 
his countenance upon thee. And so it's the name Jehovah that's specifically at the forefront of our passage. And it is repeated three times. We know the name Jehovah is the covenant name of God. We're familiar with it. That's familiar territory uh, for us. And it, is, it, it was given by uh, direct revelation. These letters were given to us directly by revelation. Remember in Exodus 3, we have the Lord appearing to Moses at the burning bush. But then if you go a few chapters later in chapter 6, verse 3, And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. Right, so this is being underlined, highlighted, brought to the fore of, of our attention. And we read later on in that same book in Exodus 33, and verse 19, where it says, this is the Lord appearing to Moses later in his life, at the end of his life. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord, or Jehovah, before thee. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy unto whom, on whom I will show mercy. So you see that coming to the fore then. Again, this is unique. The name Jehovah is unique. It is God's alone. We sing about this in Psalm 83. So Psalm 83, verse 18, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all of the earth. Well, all of this kind of bolsters then and prepares us for, for the significance of the third commandment. The sanctity of God's name. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The holiness of his name. It enables us to appreciate the first petition of the Lord's prayer. Hallowed be thy name. May his name be made, made holy. Right? The sanctity of God's own name. And of course, in the coming of the Son of God as the incarnate word into this world, what do we discover? first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And the name Jesus is Jehovah saves. So here is the Lord, Jesus Christ, coming, and he is the one who's revealed as Jehovah who saves. This isn't the last we hear of it, of course. We come to the end of... Uh, well, latterly in his, his ministry in, in Matthew 21, you'll remember Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. That last time, Matthew 21, verse 9, what did the people say? Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is a quotation, as many of you will know, from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It lists, Hosanna means save now, O Lord, right? So save now. And so in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the one who is Jehovah that saves, and in him our Hosannas become hallelujahs, don't they? We say save now, Hosanna. And in Christ Jesus, we are led to then praise that same Lord, hallelujah to his great name for a saving 
mercies. So we have all of that, but I want us to look a little closer. So we're speaking here under this first point about God's name. And I want us to look a little closer at the text that's given to us. We've noted here that in the preceding verses, Jehovah, or the name Lord, is used three times at the beginning of each of those components of of the benediction. And you think to yourself, well, what's the significance of that? It could be in terms of reinforcement, emphasis, uh, etc. All of that would be true and appropriate. But within the context of, of the scripture as a whole, are we given warrant to think even more broadly uh, about this? And I believe that we are, contrary to some of the, the penchant of some of the modern uh, biblical, so-called biblical theologians who are overly scrupulous in terms of restriction, the New Testament teaches us that it's appropriate to look for these sorts of things. And indeed, the threeness is not unwarranted for us to then want, think in terms of the expectation of what may be Trinitarian. And what's interesting here, at least as a proposal for our consideration, is that the theme given in each verse 24, 25, and 26 do fit rather snugly with the three persons of, of the Godhead. And so the Father is often described as the one from whom blessing comes, the keeper of Israel and so on. Um, verse 25, the Son makes his face shine upon us. Man, this is, we have the glory of God in the face of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is gracious to us. Hold on to that for just a second. Uh, verse 26, the Lord left up his countenance upon thee, so his face, his presence, right, and give thee peace. So we, you think, okay, well, the, 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 it's appropriate to think along these lines. But then you go to the New Testament benediction, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, which we're familiar with, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost uh, be with you all. And you, you see something further reinforced, right? So you take the middle one, the Lord make his face, and be gracious unto you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, right, in that New Testament benediction. And the love of God, which is keeping with the idea of blessing and keeping. We can flesh that out. The communion of the Holy Ghost, countenance, face, presence, nearness, peace, right? These are compatible, at least, with, with such things. And so it is possible and appropriate to think even in terms of God's name, um, being applied in terms of his triune persons, right? The Father is Lord. The Son is Lord. The Holy Spirit is Lord. But there are not three Lords. There is one Lord. There is one Jehovah. And in verse 27, put my name singular upon the children of, of Israel. And so we begin with God's name, and we recognize that what's at the forefront here is the covenant name of God, the name Jehovah. That's at the forefront of our text. Secondly, then, God's name put on his people. 
So secondly, God's name put on his people, and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel. This defines in many ways the nature of this blessing. Because at the beginning, verse 23, on this wise ye shall on this wise shall ye bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, and the benediction follows, and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. And so this is connected to the core of what this blessing entails. So here we have a benediction. Here we have the pronouncement of blessings. Um, this is not a description of what is just a pious wish. It's not merely a petition, but it is a pronouncement of God's words. I think I've preached a whole sermon on this in the past, the nature of what a benediction is biblically. It's not a petition or wish, but it's actually the pronouncement of God's word. And you can think, you know, on one hand you have a benediction, the pronouncement of blessing. One thing that would correspond to that would be the pronouncement of censure, where you have chastening, right? So you have benediction, the pronouncement of blessing, censure, the pronouncement of, of, of chastening. So it's a pronouncement of God's word. So we're told God is placing his name on his people, that there is in fact a heavenly transaction that is unfolding here if you want to think in terms of modern analogies, the Lord is writing with permanent ink his name upon his people. Or the Lord is engraving his name upon his people. His name is to be emblazoned upon his people. In other words, it's not something that can be erased or effaced or undone. It is an invisible, granted, but an invisible reality of something that God is, is doing. You think in terms of parents, you know, the child is born and you give them a name. And that's their name. That's, that's, they didn't have a say in it or a choice in it or really participation in it, but that's their name. The Lord describes Israel as a whole as his firstborn. You have it in Exodus you have it in Hosea 11, verse 1. You have it in Jeremiah. In fact, we read reference of it um, this morning. Right? The Lord referring to his people as his firstborn. And so the Lord is putting his name upon his people. But what's, what's interesting is he's describing the means by which he does it. What are the means? Well, here, uh, initially we see the means include the pronouncement of his word are the means through which he puts his name upon his people. In that sense, every proclamation or pronouncement of benediction, the Lord is reinforcing or putting his name uh, upon his people as we come under the pronouncement of his blessing. He's placing his name upon us. But it's, it's connected really to... Um, the word generally, so the ministry of the word generally. The Lord places his name upon his people through his word, and you see this in a variety of places. I'll give you just one example from prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Thy words were found, 
and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Literally, thy name is called upon me in the Hebrew, right? Thy name is called upon me. So we have this with, with reference to the word, God putting his name on his people through the ministry of the word. You can see something similar with regards to prayer. He teaches us to pray in Christ's name. And we must do so, that this is the means by which we pray in Christ's name, so that Christ's name is put over top of our prayers. It's stamped, as it were, over our prayers. Our prayers come through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the ministry of the word, we have pronouncements of benediction, we have prayer. Then you have the sacraments, right? This is the visible word that the Lord has, has established. And what we saw, and we've noted in times past and passing, is that in Matthew 28, when Jesus is giving this ordinance of baptism, he uses this very language, baptizing them in the name of of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We're baptized into the name of the triune God. And really, almost everywhere else that you see reference to this, something similar is being stated. So in Acts 2, when Peter's describing the need for baptism, he describes the promise that it's associated with, he will be your God, you will be my people, right? My people. The idea of ownership, of his name being uh, upon them. My people is the idea of possession. So we, we, we write our name on things in order to, in order to demonstrate possession. You, know, you, you buy a book on Amazon. It comes or through wherever. And it comes in the mail. Or you pick it up at the bookstore, used bookstore, or whatever. You bring it home. Many people write their name in the front of the book pencil or pen, whatever, right? What that does is it distinguishes, this is my book. You know, the warehouse has maybe a thousand of these, but this one's mine. And my friends may have this book, but this is mine. It has my name in it. We, we recognize that. My name is on, on the book. So it's this idea of possession, the Lord taking possession of his people. And this is why his people are called by his name. This is why they're called by his name. So we have in Acts 11, uh, we're told in verse 26 that uh, the, the Lord's people, believers, were first called Christians at Antioch, right? Acts 11, verse 26. Well, that itself, to be called a Christian, is to be bearing the name of Christ, right? One who is associated, belongs to, connected with the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, all the other expressions, the church of Christ, has the same idea, right? Our name, his name, and we're called by his name. We are his church, or the people of God, or the children of Israel, as the passage says here, or the Israel of God, as it says elsewhere. All of these demonstrate and more that we are called by God's name because his name has been put upon us. 
Now, what's interesting in verse 27, furthermore, is that he put his name upon all the children of Israel. The whole house, the whole nation, the whole people, the whole church, all of them have the name of Jehovah put upon them. So the whole lot, the whole of the visible church, if you will. And this is in keeping with what we see in the New Testament. Because, you know, Paul writes his epistles to the saints. And everybody is described as a saint. And that includes unconverted people. And he's telling them, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith and other things in some of these epistles. But they're all referred to in the objective outward sense as saints, as, as, as ones who are set apart, holy, unto the Lord. We read, for example, that the children of one believing parent are federally holy, right? Federally set apart as well. And so there's this, this possession that, that the Lord takes of the entire visible church, which he claims as his own. And we can use the word Christian in two ways. We can use the word Christian broadly. In fact, in the Directory for Public Worship, we have it used that way. It's used broadly for just the visible church, for for everybody that's inside the church, all members and types of members within the church, all who have some profession of the true religion and attachment uh, to the church of Jesus Christ. That's using it broadly. And that's, that's not inappropriate. You know, even those who are unconverted, children, young people, old people, whoever, it can be used rightly in that broader sense. You know, we are a Christian people. We're not Hindus. We're not Muslims. We're not Jews. We're not, you know, pagans or whatever else. We are Christians. We're part of the Christian church. We're part of the Christian people and so on. That's all using the word broadly. And then, of course, we can use the word Christian narrowly. And when we use the Christian, when we use the, the word Christian narrowly, we're referring to those who are regenerate, to those who are converted, to those who are born again, to those who have saving faith and repentance, those who are in union with Christ, those who, who, are in a, who, are, who not only have an outward you know, a profession of the true religion, but actually possess genuine saving faith and are in union with Jesus Christ. So that's using the word narrowly, which is proportionately we use the word Christian more often in its narrow sense. But my point here in distinguishing the two uses is connected to our passage because the Lord has put his name upon the children of Israel as a whole. Now, having said that, we recognize that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the visible church is mixed. Its membership is comprised of both those in a state of grace and those who are unconverted. In other words, he says, put my name upon the children of Israel, but we recognize, as the end of Romans 2 tells us, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, circumcision that is of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. Whereas chapter 9 says, not all Israel are of Israel. And so, though the name of God is placed over uh, the entire visible church, not everyone within the visible church is in a state of grace. 
uh, far from it. That's never the case. It never has been uh, the case. Not all Israel is of Israel. And so there is a mixed body within the church. So we have the name of God. Secondly, we have uh, the name of God put upon his people. Thirdly, then bearing God's name. So thirdly, bearing God's name. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So the name of God is emblazoned, engraved, engraved on the people of God, on the visible church. So that means everyone within, within my field of vision here, everyone within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, communicant members, baptized members, you know, those who are, who are adherents, whatever the case, all of, all of you, each of you individually, each of you specifically, God has put his name on you. And for those who have grown up in believing households, it was from your infancy. In baptism, he inscribed his name upon you. He laid claim to you. He, he, he took possession of you in your Trinitarian baptism. But in whatever the case, we see it in all of these other ordinances as well. And so the, the implications are several. First, we have to live up to the privileges that God has, has given to us. We bear the name of God. We bear the name of the triune God. And there is not a thing that can be done to remove that. Our life must be consistent with his royal house. And those who grow up in royalty and within a royal home are, have drilled into them from their, from their earliest days that they have obligations to conduct themselves with certain, in certain ways, dignity, gravity, and so on. How much more for those who bear the name of the triune God, the living and the true God? And what this does is it opens up for us um, the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For most people, they think of that commandment as pertaining only to their mouth. They think that taking the name of God is restricted to their mouth. When in fact, and if you've studied the larger catechism, you'll see how they, they, uh, the divines have picked up on this. It is actually applicable to the entire life. Because for those who bear the name of God, everything they do, everything you think, everything that you do with what the Lord has given you in your life, in your person, reflects his name. You may not open your mouth at all. You can take his name in vain through your conduct or through your absence of conduct in some, in some cases. And then you think then of that commandment, third commandment, I shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. He will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Right? The Lord is jealous of his own name. He's jealous of his name. He's not going to hold any guiltless who, who defames and dishonors 
his, his name. Well, this kind of re, this puts back pressure in reinforcing in our own minds the significance of what it means to bear God's name. There is a great deal at stake, and there's a great deal in terms of obligation, a great deal in terms of living up to the privileges that the Lord has given to us. We've said already that there's a claim of God's ownership. God's name is upon you. There's a claim of ownership over you. And that, that dovetails with the claim of the covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. Right? It's the claim of the covenant. And so everyone within the visible church, baptized members, children, young people, adults, you know, who, whoever and wherever, you are never, ever, ever in neutral ground. There is no such place as some mythical island of neutrality where you can sit in the middle. I've grown up in a Christian home and I have this body of truth that has been taught to me and these beliefs and practices and so on and so forth. But then I have the world at large and many other options and I stand as it were in the middle to decide which of these I prefer. That is a pure figment of your imagination if you entertain it. The Lord has already claimed ownership over you from your birth, from your conception which is reflected in baptism. He has a claim upon you. And what that means is you are obligated to submit to him, to come to him, to receive him, to follow him, to believe upon him, to glorify him. You don't have the option. You don't have a choice in the matter in terms of what is pressed upon you by way of duty. And you can't erase the name. You can rebel. That's possible. You can rebel against the Lord. I mean, you think by way of analogy, a member of a household could go to war against the household, could repudiate their household, could defy it and resist it and everything else. But at the end of the day, your name, the name of the household, is still on your birth certificate. And all your rebellion and all of your repudiation can't get rid of the fact that your name, the name of the household, is on the birth certificate. So it is with, with those who are in the covenant, the administration of the covenant of, of the Lord's grace. It's true for you children and for you, you young people. There is nothing you can ever, you can rebel against the Lord. You can break his covenant. You can refuse to come to him by faith. You can disobey in that sense, but you can never remove his name from you. And this is not only significant at present, but it is going to be most significant on the last day. Because when you appear before the judgment seat of God, when you appear before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to appear before him bearing his name. And if you've lived in unbelief and in disobedience and in flagrant disregard and in covenant breaking and in turning from light, what will that entail? When the Lord Jesus Christ says, what is this? 
you bear my name. The name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is inscribed upon you. And look at who you are and look at what you have done with my name, having defiled it, having dishonored it through unbelief and disobedience. As the New Testament scripture says, it would be better for you not to have been born than to have to face the consequences and the just judgment of God for so dishonoring his name. There's the story, I think I may have told it in years past, of Alexander the Great, not a man of virtue by a long stretch, but he is Alexander the Great. And there was a thief who, peer, who appeared before him, came, you know, was brought in, caught, brought before Alexander. Alexander said, what is your name? And the thief said, my name is Alexander. Alexander the Great said, I asked, what is your name? He repeated, Alexander. He asked him a third time, fourth time. And then finally, you know, he, 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 he um, stopped and he said, listen, either change your name or change your behavior. Right? Don't, you can appreciate the analogy in terms of Alexander's sentiment, sentiment. But the point here is something of far more grave significance the name of the Lord Jesus Christ upon us. So what's the point? The point is for all of us here, the call to faith and repentance, the idea of covenant keeping, covenant breaking, this is not something that is incidental. What we do with Christ, what we do with the proclamation of the gospel is not something tangential. It is front and center. It is at the very core of everything that is important in your life, my friend. The Lord is calling you to faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive his promises, to close with him in the gospel, to turn from sin to him as the living God, and to follow him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Lord is calling you to live up by way of his saving grace to the privileges that are given to you. So there's warning here. Inescapably, you bear the name of of God. The consequences are colossal. But there's also comfort here, and a word to parents in particular, but it applies to siblings, it applies to praying for yourself. But think in terms of, of parents especially, the basis of a parent's prayers. You're actually able to take this truth with you before the throne, and you can plead with the Lord that his name is inscribed on those children, that they bear his name and to plead for his sovereign intervention and grace in their life as a consequence. And the reason I say you're able to do that is because the Bible shows us that that is true. Jeremiah chapter 14. Jeremiah 14, verse 9. Why shouldst thou be as a man astonished, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. Right? It's warrant 
leverage, if you will, to use in prayer. You have the same thing. Daniel does it in Daniel chapter 9, which many of you will recognize as the, his prayer of, of repentance. And there in chapter 9, verse 18, O my God, incline your ear and hear, open thine eyes, and behold our desolation, the city which is, and the city which is called by thy name. Verse 19, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thy own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. So we're able to employ this in prayer before the Lord. It's very similar to a parallel idea in the Old Testament and the New Testament where the Lord is called to remember his covenant. Right? Because the two are in intricately connected, bearing his name and the Lord remembering his covenant. So in Exodus 6, which I quoted earlier, in verse 5 of that chapter, we, we have the Lord, this very language of him rem remembering his covenant. Actually, we sing about it in the Psalms as well. In Psalm 105, um, verse 8, where it says this, he hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. We get it in the prophets in Ezekiel 16, that, that you know, remarkable chapter, and other places. But in the New Testament, we see it as well. The Lord remembering, being called to remember his, his covenant. So there in Luke 1, you have, um, you have Zacharias, and in that, that final section there, in verse 68, it begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who hath visited and redeemed his people. But if you keep reading as you go down, in verse 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So you can, you can trace this out on your, on your own, in your own leisure. But the point is that we're able to plead this before the Lord in prayer. In terms of covenant keeping and covenant breaking, in, in Deuteronomy 28, which is a place where the covenant blessings and curses are, are set forth, you have in verse 10, and the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, and he goes on, and in the land which he gave and swear to thee by thy fathers. All of that is preceded by verse 10, and all people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord. Jehovah, and they shall be afraid of thee. Right? Or you think of the language, this is often quoted, um, 2 Chronicles 7, right, verse 14. So it's speaking about the reviving of God's people and they're humbling themselves and calling upon God's name and those who are themselves called by his, his name. And so there's comfort here. There's, there's consolation. We can plead this for ourselves. Lord, remember uh, that I am called by thy name. Remember my seed are called by thy name. Remember that so-and-so bears thine own name. And we can plead for the Lord to, to, to intervene in his mercy, uh, to spare, to grant faith, to grant repentance, to grant blessing, and so on. And for those who are in a state of grace and who are, who are professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's exhortation for us as well, isn't there? Paul speaks about God's people being living epistles, known and read of all men. 
we are to be living epistles. We, we are, this is attached in terms of baptism, as our catechism says, to this idea of engagement to be the Lord's possession, his name upon us, him having taken ownership of us, this, this concept of consecration and of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian needs a sense of that. We need to think, though it's, it's invisible to us. In fact, it's more real than what you can see in this sense. The Lord's triune name is inscribed upon you. And you need to think in, in, in those categories. I belong to him. I'm not my own. And therefore, by the grace of God, I am to live for him and to live unto him and to live in pursuit of his own glory, right? This engagement to be the Lord's. The passage before us is beautiful. It's beautiful in its broader context. It's beautiful in terms of the, the provision that God gives for this ordinance of, of the pronouncement of a blessing upon his people, the pronouncement of his own word, God commanding his blessing upon his people. But we fall short if we do not recognize the connection between the pronouncement of his blessing and him putting his name upon us. These things are tied intimately uh, together. And so it's a stimulus to us. It's a stimulus to holiness. He blesses us with these privileges of being raised to bear his name in order that by his grace he might bless us to live out of those privileges in a way that honors his name. So if you're going to keep the name of the Lord holy, if you're going to honor and respect and revere and fear the name of the Lord, it is going to find its expression in the pursuits of holiness, of godlikeness, that those who bear his name are being made like him, to look like him, to bear as well his, his glory before a watching world. So we have this theme of bearing God's name. The significance and sanctity of the name, the significance of being placed upon us, and then the far-reaching implications of all that that entails. May the Lord bless it to our hearing. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord our God, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, conscious that all of our prayers uh, require his intercession and mediation. All of our prayers must have uh, thine own name uh, written over them uh, so that they are received and perfumed uh, by Christ's own ministry and person. And we pray, O Lord, help us to take deeper stock and appreciation for the significance of what it means for thy triune name to be engraved upon uh, thy church and people. Uh, give, we ask, O Lord, uh, the Spirit to enable us to respond appropriately, uh, that we would be drawn out in faith and the fruit of faith to the glory of Jesus Christ. For we ask it all for his sake. Amen.